Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews in the archives and play the very best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with my partner and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. Can't wait to play you some great interviews today. But before we get to that, I want to ask you. So recently, Running Up That Hill by Kate Bush was kind of resurrected because of the show Stranger Things. Right. Right. Like fired back into the top 100, did really well, and it became a new song for a whole generation of listeners. And what a worthy song. And it's a great song. And you love it for her because she's such a a singular artist. So what song do you think deserves to be resurrected so a whole new generation of people could hear that song? Hmm. I can think of a lot of songs (laughs) that are, you know, obviously sort of just favorite songs that I feel have not gotten their fair share of the, you know, the pie airtime wise. What about um, Seeds of Love? Like Tears for Fears? Yeah. That is one of the great songs of the 80s. It is so well produced and it's so beautiful. And I agree with that. That honestly would have been one of mine too. But when you hear them played, it's always everybody wants to rule the world. Yeah. Maybe shout. Maybe shout, yeah. But you don't hear Seeds of Love. No, it's underrated. Yeah. Um, how about Dear God by XTC? Oh, that's a good one. That was a weird one because I was in a little bit, like I was raised in the church as a kid. Ah. And that was around the time where I was probably questioning things the same way that Andy Partridge was in the song. And it was, it was a little bit shocking though to hear as, you know, as a person who was raised that way. And as a person who was kind of making that transition, maybe away a little bit from that way of thinking, but but the song still shocked me a little bit, but it is a great song, very powerful. Would it still have the ability to shock today? Um, No, I'm not sure it would. In some places it might. Oh, yes. Oh, it would have the ability to outrage, yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. Any others? Positively Fourth Street. Good song. Great song. And I mean, if you can say that Dylan's songs don't get enough play then you know yeah it'd be hard to find one that qualifies but for me positively fourth street which came uh, right along the same time as like a rolling stone yeah. is like forgotten compared to the other song and that's the song by the way it wasn't like a rolling stone it was positively fourth street that transformed Joni mitchell as a songwriter she said as soon as she heard that she went oh we can do that too and that was one of the few times that she was uh, charitable towards Bob Dylan and any of her compliments. <laughs> good, good old Johnny. All right. I have one song. Yeah. Um, and it is The Hole of the Moon by the Water Boys. Do you right. know that song? I, I do. And it is just, it's so powerful. It's so well done. Mike Scott is the lead vocalist of the Water Boys. And it's beautifully written. And it's lasted, like the people who know him and know that song still hold it close to their hearts Mm. so that's that's the one that i would choose and it was you know minor hit i think it was a bigger hit in the uk minor hit over here uh but that's the one for me yeah we played it on much though that's for sure yeah great song the water boys and their excellent hit from 1985 the hole of the moon Okay, so let's talk about this week's show. First up is Christopher's excellent 1989 interview with the great Tina Turner, and it is a good one. You guys cover a lot of ground. Then we have a really entertaining chat with Cher from 2003, and this is during her farewell tour. Of course, she had another farewell tour in 2014 and another one in 2018, but this is from the 2003 farewell tour. 
But this chat with her is amazing. She's in great spirits talking to Marilyn Dennis and Roger Ashby. And we wrap up the show with a very in-depth and fascinating interview with Melissa Etheridge from 1995. Melissa talks about her music and live performances and how she dealt with her personal life being in the tabloids. It's a solid show from beginning to end. Let's get rolling with Tina Turner. From 1984, that's Tina Turner. What a song. Better be good to me. Love that song. Yes. And of course, we've had the writer of that song, Holly Knight, on this show. That's right. Uh, talking about how she created it. And it's a great story. Episode number... Uh, this is a test. 17 million and three. <laughs> By the way, you can also see that on YouTube... Christopher, you have a series on YouTube called, I think it's called Songwriters on Songwriting. On Songwriting. On Songwriting. And Holly Knight is describing how she created this song. It's a great story. All right, Tina, let's go. Tom, it's amazing to me to think that Tina Turner was 50 when I did this interview. And not that 50 is old, but the breadth of her career and life up until then was just extraordinary. And as you'll hear in the conversation, she was not slowing down at all. She'd had the comeback of all comebacks on the charts and in her personal life story that was incredibly inspiring and harrowing by turns. All of it was documented in her autobiography, I, Tina. Now, 1989 saw the release of her seventh solo album, Foreign Affair, an album that sold six million copies and included the hit The Best, also written by one Holly Knight, who'd written Better Be Good to Me. She starts the interview talking about how the song The Best affected her. Tina, when you were putting the songs together for the record, obviously you were going carefully and choosing songs. Was there an attitude you were looking to express with this record? No. I, I, we didn't have time to come up with concept because uh, the music came and we liked it a lot. We loved it. And, and I was anxious to, see, to, to make the demo into a record because there was key change. You didn't know if you'd be able to make it to come from, from, from a demo to music because of that. And um, then Holly Knight came in with tunes. Uh, so it was difficult to say no to, which was one of the best. And um, there was a concept. And the concept was a good album, good music. I really became excited. I wanted to go in the studio. I wanted to hold them in my hands and hear myself singing. The best came from Holly Knight. And when I took it, uh, as usual, I listened to a lot of demos riding in my car. Let the windows down, put on the music. This one got me. Some kind of way I found myself driving faster and enjoying it and feeling like, oh, the video should be, should be like this. Should be some kind of outdoor, really getting it without sports or something. And I thought, a horse. Aside from going to video, thinking about making the song, how can I really make this song go from demo to record? And it took me to produce it. Because like Better Be Good To Me, you saw it on stage, you saw what it became. <laughs> yes. Well, I needed to make this song become mine. So I produced it. I changed the arrangement, starting out with the front pattern of, you know, the, the pumping bass pattern, and then going into action. And it, and it keeps getting more action and more action and climaxing each. And the song, I also feel that it's, well, aside from it just getting me and me really enjoying it, it's one of those slangs where you say, ah, oh, it's the best, you know, ah, oh, it's the best. It's a few people have already said, ah, oh, the best. You're simply the best. From 1989, that's the best, Tina Turner. It would be very hard to find just one signature song for Tina Turner. It could be that one. Yeah, it could be. It could be What's Love Got to Do With It, mm -hmm. which she sells. 
But could, she never liked. She didn't like at first, but she did find a way to like it. Yeah, you wouldn't want that to be the song that's emblematic of your career, though. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Better Be Good To Me, like we said, Proud Mary. Boy, she sang the heck out of that uh-huh, song, didn't she? Uh-huh. Yeah. Great stuff. So many to choose from. Yeah. I love that image of her driving along with the windows down, yeah. listening to the song the best, and trying to find her way into the song to make it hers. Mm-hmm. That's the sign of a great artist, I yeah. think. Here she talks about her influences. Delivery, Sam Cooke, Ray Charles. I was mixed with a lot of male singers at the time when I was working with Ike in the beginning stages, and they were all really trooper singers. They, they could sing anything. They weren't dancers, they were just singers. So I think that's when I really got the delivery under my thumb. And the dancing just was sort of a part of me. Tom, 28 years of stagecraft made her who she was. I started in 1960, and I've been doing it for 28 years. And if you do that type of traveling and dancing and singing, and you know anything about health at all, sweating, the heartbeat, the exercise, that getting up, really getting out there, pushing every day at airports, running. It's been 20 years of jogging, so to speak, you know? <laughs> the gym started for me in, I think, 1960. So I'm sure that that had a lot to do, has a lot to do with my physical appearance. See, a lot of people have commented that uh, artists as diverse as Mick Jagger have learned from you on stage, and there's an incredible sexuality to what you do when you perform. Where did you get that from? I'm just a country girl from the south, from the cotton fields. You don't get sex out of cotton fields. What are you talking about? (laughs) I don't know this sex thing. No, I I can't relate at all. I don't know. I I took songs from the Stones and Stewart covering. That was my, my, my performance for years when I didn't have music. Maybe some relation to that style of singing, uh, extroverted, short dresses, free, really into my work. And some kind of way I got stamped to sexy. It wasn't a plan. It was just all a part of my performance, really. Christopher, do you think that she was serious there? This is what I wanted to ask you about, about rebuffing oh. <laughs> you about the sexuality of her performance right there. Do you think she was kidding? What do you think? I got the feeling that she was scolding you, kind of saying she didn't really want to talk talk about that. No, I know exactly what she was doing. Okay. She was being intentionally coy and funny. Oh, great. It was for her, a comedian it was like, she was like, why, little old me? You know, that's <laughs> it. That's what it was. And she and she just gave me that, that look. And then she just kind of went into the real answer right yes, after. That's yeah. great. No, it was, it was pretty funny. <laughs> great. Still to come, some Tina Turner cool song facts including the story about the fight to keep her name, and then a great chat with Cher from 2003, where she explains why the police had to get involved with her farewell tour. This is Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Still to come, Cher and Melissa Etheridge, but we're not finished with Tina Turner as we share some cool Tina facts. When Tina officially divorced Ike Turner in 1976, she wanted nothing from him except her name. She had to negotiate to get her name, and he agreed to let her keep it, but nothing else. She worked for years and years to pay off her debts, but at least she was Tina Turner. 
Yeah. Oh. <laughs> that is that is truly a harrowing story. Yes. If you've ever read that that autobiography. Yeah. She writes it with Kurt Loder, who is uh, from uh, Rolling Stone. And that brand new documentary about Tina, in which she looks back on her own life, is extraordinary. And she tells that story as well. Mm. Um, one of the first signs of her comeback, by the way, in the early 80s, was when the synth band Heaven 17... Do you remember them? I do. Yeah, they did a, had a great song called Let Me Go. Um, they got her to sing Ball of Confusion. And it was kind of this minor hit. And it was this like wedge that kind of got her noticed again. Mm. Right? Okay. So her 50th anniversary tour in 2008, in 2009, grossed $132 million. Wow. Great. Played to more than a million people. Great. She was 69 years old at the time. It's... Dunning how much energy she has. Yeah, she has it. Yeah. She's amazing. So, What's Love Got to Do With It was written by Terry Britton and Graham Lyle, who had written a couple of hits for Cliff Richard, including Devil Woman. And they offered him the song first. He turns it down. Donna Summer also turns it down. Tina did not care for the song at first, like you say, but she said her openness to try something new and to be open gave her the um, courage to step out of her comfort zone and try that song, which many said saved her career. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And by the way, Tina thinks of herself, and I think rightly, as a rock singer, not an R&B or a soul singer. She's a rock singer. That's how she sees herself. She's all of the above. Yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. Better be good to me. Back to that song. Rupert Hine, producer, played all of the instruments on that song, except for the guitar, which was by Jamie West Orham of The Fix. Hmm. Speaking of The Fix, their lead singer, the lead singer of The Fix, sang background on Better Be Good To Me. And to complete the circle, Rupert Hine was the producer of The Fix. I did not know that. <laughs> That's the great Tina Turner on Famous Lost Words. Do you believe? 1999, that's Share and Believe, a song that went to number one when she was 52 years old, making her the oldest woman in the rock era to go to number one. By the way, the oldest wow. man, Louis Armstrong with Hello Dolly when he was 62, and that would have been in about 1964-65. I'm just sorry they never got around to that duet because, you know, it's a missed opportunity. Cher and Sachmo. Yes, that's right. Cher is a megastar. Yeah. But as you listen to her, she sounds more like someone you went to school with or someone who's like a fan sitting beside you at a show that you're both loving, right? Yep. And she has this ability, to me like a Bette Midler, to pull an audience to her with this flamboyant style, this theatrical boldness, yeah. her sense of humor, and her love of great songs that people can connect with. Here we catch up with her on the eve of what was supposed to be <laughs> the last stop on her 2003 farewell tour, also known as the Never Can Say Goodbye Tour, <laughs> more, more appropriately. Yes. That tour eventually grew to 326 shows from a much more modest beginning, ending up in the place where it all started, where she did her first concert with Sonny, the Hollywood Bowl. The New York Times Review, I'll just read a tiny bit of it, is so perfect. Cher triumphed over restraint, aging, and gravity. <laughs> Roger and Marilyn conduct their usual casual and warm interview, the kind that has put so many artists at ease over the years. Even Marilyn's chat with Cher before the interview starts officially is worth hearing. 
Hello? Hi, Cher? Yeah? Marilyn Dennis, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Very good, I'm thrilled to be speaking to you. Thanks. We have been uh, the radio station that's presented your first two concerts, and we're really excited about the third one. And I'm not just saying that. I can't believe we're doing this. I went to, I, 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 can I just, before Roger gets in here and steals my thunder. Okay. Uh, the Way of Love. When you did The Way of Love and you walked up on the stage, I thought I was going to weep. Oh, that's great. Beautifully done. Beautifully done. Roger has now arrived. Okay, doke. You met him back in 1971. I'm sure you you remember. I met you and Sonny in the lobby of the Royal York Hotel here in Toronto. Of course I remember you. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk about the concert, and we're going to go right now. And um, we talk mostly about the concert, but other things, too. So it's Roger and Marilyn, okay? Okay, doke. Okay, doke. Here we go. First, let me ask you, and when we're happy that you have, but why did you choose Toronto for your farewell concert? Well, because we started there. That was our first concert. Yes, of course. So you figured that was the best place to end it. Right, and we, I mean, we rehearsed, we rehearsed there as well, so we rehearsed some, some part in, in Los Angeles, but the actual first time I ever saw the stage was when we rehearsed in Toronto. That's first time a, any yeah. of us were ever on the stage. It was made outside of, it was made in, what was it made? Uh, in Pittsburgh, I think, and then they sent it up. That is so cool. Bob Mackey did a great job on all your costuming. You're going to change it for this Halloween concert? Well, I might have one surprise. You might. You might. might That's have one good. surprise. Speaking of this, I, the roster on this concert, I mean, the Village People, Sister Sledge, Thelma Houston, and we understand, well, we're working with your management because we're going to do the and more. Do you want to give us a hint as the... Who that might be? No, because that's the surprise. Chair. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, and more means, you know. And I'm... more. <laughs> right. Well, we're really pleased because the Chum FM presented your last two sold-out concerts, and they were huge. So we're really excited to be on board for this one. Uh, and you're encouraging people to dress up. Absolutely, because, you know, it's Halloween. Okay, I don't want the floors, though, because if somebody has one of your headpieces on, I won't be able to see you. Well, they can just you can just ask them politely to remove it. I will. I will. Concert. So, besides the the roster that's changed, uh, uh, you know, and has been added to, what what else do you plan on doing with without you know giving away any surprises? Well, if I if I tell you, then I I can't plan on doing. I mean, we have just some ideas of things that we sure. want to do, but I but it's all kind of Halloweeny. It's kind of it's all in the spirit of Halloween. Now I'm going to ask you this: seventeen months on the road. Is that what it is now? 17 months on the road. Uh, okay, what happened with the wig that got stolen about six months ago? Did somebody steal it? We got it back. I know, but what happened? You mean, how do we... Some that, woman stole it oh. backstage, <laughs> and then and I was really furious because it's it's one of the important wigs, so that wig is really, you know, it has all stuff hanging in it and woven in it and all that, but thank God, Morgan, who does my wigs on the road she just ran out she bought something she bought feathers she bought colored hair she braided and like in that night we had something to wear but it wasn't the original one so we actually the police this is so weird a policeman was getting a haircut and two chairs down from him he heard a guy talking about he had a friend a a girl that he know knew had stolen a wig from the sheriff concert oh my oh, gosh no. 
So one a, thing led to another. That they girl got it was really unlucky. <laughs> Very unlucky. What a lucky break for you. Right. So it, we got it back. That's that's great. And I and that made the news. Is there any other kind of stories? I mean, that's a long time on the road. And, of course, it's a great show. I mean, it's it's sold out everywhere. Tell me, uh, was there any other stories that happened that you thought were kind of quirky? Well, the only other thing that was, well, I mean, there's small things that have happened, yeah. but but when I got, when Cleveland went right out, I mean, it was like the first week of the tour, and I was in the, you know, on the chandelier, and the chandelier came down, and I was hung up in the air, and that was, that's the really only scary thing that's happened to me. Still much more to come with Cher, including the crazy things she sees from the stage. This is Famous Last Words, heard on radio stations across Canada, and as a podcast in more than 100 countries around the world, on the iHeartRadio app or any other major podcast platform. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. In just a few seconds, we're going to start up a conversation, a great conversation with Melissa Etheridge. But first, let's finish our segment about Cher. Once again, this interview is from 2003, and here's Marilyn Dennis asking Cher about some of the details of her stage show at the time. Oh, my gosh. There's so much going on on the stage, so many theatrics. Uh, you know, it's what's your, what's your favorite part of the show? Because everybody has their favorite part. First of all, the retrospective is outstanding. I'm trying to think, really, what is my favorite part? You know, I'm not so sure I have a favorite part. I, you know, I really, I think that a long time ago I might have had a, a favorite part, but as I've done it, it's like there are increments in it. Sometimes I like talking to the audience, and that's my favorite part. And they love it when you do that. And, and but I don't know, it's, I guess... I guess a lot of times it's talking to the audience because pretty much once I'm finished talking, the show starts, I mean, it starts like a freight train and I just never, I never get a moment to even think about it, much less have a favorite part. I mean, sometimes, like I have favorite moments in the show just Mm -hmm. because strange things happen or I see somebody in the audience that makes me laugh or, you know, those kinds of things, but... I mean, all the songs I like, you know, I pretty much like all the same, you know. Sometimes one night I'll figure, oh, I did that better, or, oh, God, that was terrible, you know. So it just, it depends. But a lot of times it comes from the audience. Yeah, they really, they really, they never sit down. No, and I mean, like, you see little, oh, my God, I've been seeing little girls, like, dressed up. (gasps) The other night there was a little girl in a a little Aladdin outfit, you know. From the Aladdin movie, and she had on these little harem pants and <laughs> stars and and stones on her face and a boa, and she was having the best time. I see lots of little kids that make me laugh, and then sometimes I see really old people dance, dancing around, and and then I mean, one night not so long ago, I had there were a whole bunch of little girls like about in their teens. And they had on sailor hats, and it said divas in training on their sailor hats. So, I mean, I get surprised, you know, all the time by what's going on in the audience. And the dancers do really silly things, too, on stage, you know. We, it becomes a family, too, doesn't it? Well, I mean, yeah, we've been together for yeah. a really long time. Yeah. So, after all of this is done, yeah. and it's the next day, yeah. what's going on with your life? You're taking a big vacation after this huge concert? After this tour is finished? Yeah, I really am. I, there's one thing that I might do in England, um, 
with, do you know Dame Edna? In, oh, yeah. Sure. Okay, so I might. That's going to be great. What are you going to do so with Barry's him, doing, Barry's doing a Christmas show, and he wants to come over and do something. He's It's Dame Edna's moved into the palace, and he wants me to come and do something. And I love him, so I might. Oh, I think that would be great to see. Go to England and do some something with him in this silly Christmas show. Be prepared. You never know where he's going. Well, you know, I've already worked with him twice. I did a special. I did this one show when he was in England, and I did a special with him for America. So I know he's crazy, but I really have a good time. He makes me laugh so much. Now, the word farewell has meant different things to different people. Does farewell, in your case, really mean farewell? This is it? We're not going to see you on stage touring again? Yeah. Yeah? All I, right. You know, I, it's just, I've, I've, I'm right now at 180 shows. Oh. Toronto will be 200 shows. I can't tell you how difficult that is, and uh, it's just, it's an almost impossibility. Yeah, you and must. I, I think that it's better to just... Stop touring now. I mean, I might do like a one-off concert or something. Like I always wanted to do a concert at Carnegie Hall, but I'll mm. never, I'm never going to tour again. I understand they want you to go to Europe and do a tour there. Well, I, that's next year. I might finish in. I might go do in Europe and, and Australia, mm-hmm. and maybe something in Japan. But I mean, I, I can't. You know, there's only so many places in the world you can go, and mm. plus, I'm pretty much finished. But I, I didn't want to just end in America, you know. I mean, if I end in America, that'll be great, but I kind of did want to see, you know, everybody before I go. Mm-hmm. That's so great. We're, we're Chum FM, so proud and excited to be working with you once again. And even well, though we've been to... successful in the past, hasn't it? It's been really good. It's been <laughs> a great well. relationship, and believe you me, sure, I know about relationships, and so do you. <laughs> I I gotcha, baby. But listen, I can't wait to see you up on stage. Thanks, Thanks, Cher. Cher. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. There's a lot to like in that interview. Cher talking about her favorite moments, her interactions with the audience, the importance of certain elements in her show, including her wardrobe and headdresses, and also (laughs) the incredible length of the tour to that point. And you can hear her exhaustion. But like you said in the intro, Christopher, that show went on a great deal longer even after that Halloween of 2003 show in Toronto at the then Sky Dome. And as someone who was in the studio when that interview took place, it's just great personally for me to hear Roger and Marilyn in their natural element with their natural chemistry. So far this week, we've featured some brilliant women, Tina Turner and Cher, and we're not about to stop now. What a performance. Great song from 1995, I Want to Come Over by Melissa Etheridge. And as she is in her music, Tom, Melissa Etheridge is an open book in this interview. Mm-hmm. One of the most refreshingly honest subjects you'll hear from, she talks about the tabloid side of her career, artists who've inspired her, playing smaller venues, and dealing with fans, among other things. Now, the album that was featured at the time of this interview is Your Little Secret, right. a 1995 release that became a career peak. It's her biggest chart success, hitting the top 10 in the Billboard album charts. The story of the source of the album title is delightful. Yeah. But first, Melissa talks about how to quell that desire to run screaming from all the attention you get. There's people standing outside of the radio station right now. Not (laughs) all the artists that come here get that. Mm. But they found out that you were coming in, and so there's people that come down and stand outside the radio station. How do you deal with that? Well, I try to keep grounded. I try to keep my feet on the ground, no matter how crazy I might feel, 
I yes, I see these type of people every day, but they don't see me every day. So I, I need to keep that in mind and and take a second to say, hey, hello, thank you. But do you ever want to get to the stage? And uh, this probably isn't. You've got to be careful. I understand because you've got an image to protect. Oh, yes. But you've got to get to the stage. You carry around your own indelible marker because you get <laughs> to ask so often for your signature. Do you ever want to just say, oh, geez, just leave me alone? Um. Well, sure, sure. There are days when it's like, oh, I, I can't, you know, see another person, and and it and it takes a lot out of you to, to really be there for for every person that says hello, and you know that you you never give them everything they they want, and and it does take a lot out of you. And sure, I'd, I'd love to run screaming, but um, that's that's not the point right now. Sure, she may feel that way sometimes, but we interviewed Melissa a number of times over the years, including a few showcase events in front of a large group of fans, and she was always great. I saw her at her first showcase, and actually it's funny because she talks about the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto. Right. She was playing at the Rivoli, which is just down the street from the Horseshoe, and is even smaller. (laughs) And uh, the record company brought a handful of people down to see her, and she was amazing. I mean, it was one of those just hairs on end from beginning to end kind of uh, experiences. Well, I remember that time because that first album came out, you know, the album cover is red and she's kind of got this passionate pose. Yeah. And then you hear, bring me some water. Mm. It just blows your mind how good and how powerful that performance was. Here she talks about the theme of Your Little Secret. When I listen to your music, most of it seems very introspective. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's a correct assumption? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, so very, it's very honest. When we hear songs, we can almost take that as a slice of your life at the time. Yeah. In, in artistic form. It's not always 100% accurate. So you mean some of the names have been changed to and protect the innocent. to protect the not-so-innocent people that I write about. <laughs> the ones that you just don't want to have to pay copyright fees <laughs> to. Go. Okay, good. Uh, so the new album, Your, your Little Secret. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the secret? Well, see, it's your little secret. It's my little it's not, secret. It's not also, mine. It's so yours. it's mine. So we're allowed to impose our own secrets it, on your music. <laughs> Can we do that? Wow, is that like interactive music? That? That's great. <laughs> Absolutely. It's the the song itself is about um, uh, someone else's uh, games and and their own their own uh, secrets that they're going through, and me uh, being um, uh, caught into it, you know, brought into it, and. Uh, not wanting to, but but being complimented by it, but uh, you know, pulling out of it and saying, "Whoa, whoa!" And um, the titling the album this was actually me um, going on the internet and uh, lurking, which I sometimes do, and seeing one fan of mine say to another, "You know, boy, she's real famous now. She's not our little secret anymore." So I thought I'd title the album Your Little Secret. Etheridge had a particularly memorable experience at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I saw you when you were playing in, uh, in Cleveland. Hey, I, I was fun. at the concert for the Rock and oh. Roll Hall of Fame. That was, that was great. <laughs> did you stay for the last number? I didn't. I, uh, oh, good. Well, it was a disaster, that yeah. last number. <laughs> no, I, uh, I turned to my wife and I said, God, does pizza sound good to you right about yeah, now? Yeah, it was a six-hour concert. I got I got to admit, I got a little bored when Bob sang four tunes. Ooh, you know? That'll, that'll hurt. I mean, it, it was okay when Bruce came out to start yeah. singing backup because then we knew what song he was singing. You're right. <laughs> Up until then, it was kind of a guessing game. We're all sitting around going, uh, positively forced? No, that's not I don't right. know. What... <laughs> Didn't you? I, I know that. <laughs> he can he can do that, you know? he's Bob, They put him up there. He just does whatever he wants. Yeah. but And also... At the, uh, at the, uh, where was it that you did the, uh, at Woodstock 94 when you mm. did the, uh, you did the uh, tribute to Janice. Oh, yeah. 
that must be great. But it's also got to be daunting because there's such a when it's it's to hear somebody else sing those songs. I think probably you would be one of the few people that could pull it off with enough verve in your voice to do it. Because when you hear, you know, take a piece of my heart. Oh yeah, that's Janis Joplin. Yeah. Period. That's it. And she owns that and and that that passion. And it was it was something that I'd always loved to do. Something that I always got inspiration from was her and her work. And I felt okay. This is this is the my time where I can pay tribute to her. I can step and say, this is what I'm doing. I'm not trying to be her, not trying to do that. It's Woodstock. She was there 25 years to the day that I, that I was there. We mm-hmm. were, she was booked about the same time on Saturday that I played. And um, it was just my, you know, saying this, this woman inspired me. She was here. Remember her. Let her not be forgotten, and, and this is some of her music. But did you just have the urge to go backstage afterwards and take a big swill of Southern Comfort? <laughs> Sugar in a glass, anyone? You, you know, I just, I I can't even act like I like that stuff. Oh, that'll melt your feelings. There you go, peace <laughs> of my heart. Melissa Etheridge from 2005, and this is a 1995 conversation between Dale Smith and Melissa Etheridge. Much more to come with Melissa, including how her coming out was one of the best things to ever happen to her. This is Famous Lost Words. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. We're in the middle of a wonderful interview with Melissa Etheridge, speaking to Dale Smith in 1995. Melissa is so forthright in this. A few months before this chat, Melissa had come out. So that story was very fresh when we asked her about her personal life. And you've recently moved in, well, again, about a year ago, uh-huh. with, uh, I can't remember, uh, Cypher? Oh, yeah, her, yes. Actually, we probably. <laughs> oh, yeah, her. Oh, yeah, her. Oh, we'll be sure to send a copy of this down there. I'm glad she's not listening right and now. And as soon as you get home, it'll be, she's what do you plane. mean? Oh, yeah, her. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the hell's uh, that <laughs> But I thought, because we we've lived together for four years now, about yeah. four years. We've been together about seven years. How does that make you feel? I mean, there's people who want me to ask you about certain things like mm-hmm. that when part of your life seems almost tabloid-like. I mean, in the, the approach. Well, it's it's... It's hmm. It's untabloid. I decided to untabloid it because yeah. I was getting to the point where things were being said about me that were not true. I was being misquoted, you know, and, and it, it looked like I was lying about things and I was very uncomfortable with it and, and just hated it. So I came out about three years ago now mm-hmm. and it has just been a, a wonderful experience and it's been embraced and certainly nothing bad has happened and, and no detriment to my career and I like it. I think people are refreshed by the honesty. I mean, we've got so many different stars mm. who are like, you know that they're hiding something, or you think they're hiding something. They just look like they're hiding they something. They look like they're hiding something. <laughs> and you're so, your music from the beginning has always yeah. been pretty raw and honest. Yeah. Well, why not the rest of your why life not? anyway? Exactly. You know, Christopher, this is not the first artist who has spoken about how coming out was one of the best things to happen to them. I don't know if you remember George Michael talked about oh, that in yeah, episode sure. 404. And that's a great episode, by the way. Mm-hmm. Andy Bell from Erasure in one of our 80s episodes talked about not only coming out as gay and how freeing that was, but also when he revealed that he was HIV positive. Mm. And that was a huge weight for him and also very empowering to a lot of uh, a lot of his fans and just other people who were going through the same thing. Both very positive experiences from both of those artists. It's amazing. Now, in this clip, she talks about playing the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto. Right. A much smaller venue than she would usually play. How does that feel to come out now? And I mean, you're playing, you're going to be play, you're playing the uh, the Horseshoe. Yeah. 
Now, when you play a venue like the Horseshoe, what drives you to do something like that when you could come in and, you know, literally you could sell out most of the venues in Toronto? Yeah. Well, that's not what it's all about right now. I'm coming back in March or April to do that. I'll do the proper thing. Everybody who wants to come see me can come see me. Um, this is to to get back, sort of, to introduce my new album, where on the last album I spent a lot of time in America, really um, didn't get up to Canada much. I just don't want to get too far away from Canada. I don't want them ever to feel like, oh, she's just a big American artist that's not dropping in. Canada was there for me from the very beginning, from the first single of my first record. And it's important for me to come and play a, a small bar and say, hey, remember me? I'm, I'm, I'm the one that we, we've had so much fun with. Yeah, but you've got to be doing that also for yourself. It's probably, yeah. is it more okay. fun for yourself to do an intimate show like that? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of fun to it. There's, I, I wouldn't want to have to do it all the time. Yeah. I mean, I have to be honest with it. Sure, I, I like saying, boy, I, I love... I love seeing the pay stubs at the end of the uh, Sky Dome yeah, performance. Okay. Wow! <laughs> Look at that! Hot dog! Well, and the other aspects, too. The clean dressing rooms are really, you That's, know, a, a plus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my own dressing room is a plus. But you got to like the homey atmosphere of the dressing rooms at the, at Ooh, the horseshoe. All those things are written on the walls. Yes, and so, but yeah, it's good to get this these songs, these brand new songs. I love the opportunity of playing with them with my band and and, and setting them up on the uh, on a small stage and working them out and and getting them done. Mm-hmm. Back to the stage thing and going back to Cleveland and stuff with Bruce Springsteen there. Mm-hmm. Now he's got a, he was a, he was an influence of yours when oh, you were just getting going. How does that feel to almost find yourself? You know, nobody ever wants to say, "Well, they're on a par." No, with no, the boss, I, I, but no. but certainly. <laughs> You're in the category because you're there. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been there. But, I mean, it's got to be well, walking backstage bump. It's like, oh, hi, Bruce. <laughs> I mean, that's something that most people who are just getting going in a band or something can't fathom. Yeah. I, I giggle about it a lot. And and I um I have to say, okay, I deserve this. I deserve this. I deserve this. Because it's very hard because he – there's a poster of him right behind you. I'm sitting here <laughs> looking at him. I knew that. He's, I tagged that you up. You were no, so I, good at that. No, he's been such an inspiration. He's been such a uh, – his career, his every, his 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 music. You know, I've always looked to it when I when I needed inspiration or wanted to know what to do, and it's just it's so great to you know be part of that. How do you feel when you get aspiring musicians or even just fans coming up to you now and saying, mm-hmm. you know, your music is inspiring me? How do you uh, react to that? Because I'm I'm the type of person who feels a little shy when somebody comes up and says, I really like what you do and you sound great. Blah 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 blah. And I kind of go, oh yeah, I shuffle my feet like a little kid. <laughs> it's it's. Something you have to get used to, absolutely. You, uh, you have to say thank you and good luck to them because I have been there and I, I know what it's like. At least once per episode, Christopher, I have to comment on how likable an artist is. <laughs> and this is that moment. She is so great in this. The conversation goes back to one of her earliest hits, Somebody Bring Me Some Water. Somebody Bring Me Some Water was my first hit. It was it was everything. And it was just written from an experience I had one night when I knew all was going wrong, and I didn't know how to describe this hot pain that I was in, and I just wanted someone to bring me that proverbial, metaphorical water to drown myself in. Did you get the proverbial water? Yeah, we broke up. <laughs> that was what it was? <laughs> that, was it, that was the anecdote, huh? Yeah, that, uh, that solved it right then. Really? So you just get almost an explosion of emotion, and the whole song just falls into place? Sometimes, sometimes I think the best songs are like that or when the inspiration, the, the emotion, the experience happens and I'm, a, I'm able to write about it right then and there. And this was one of those ones that just came like... This very night, tonight, another woman is whispering your name. Somebody bring me some water. 
From 1988, Bring Me Some Water, that has to be one of the best debut singles by any artist. It's so hard to have a hit single in the first place, but to do it in such an emphatic manner, the way Melissa Etheridge did, is even more impressive. What other debut singles come to mind as being like the peak of their career is right off? Day one out of the gate, yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of times when you think you know the artist's first single release, it's not. Right. Because they've had a couple of other things that came and went very quietly. That's right. And yeah. maybe deservedly so. <laughs> but for me, how about The Weight oh, yeah. by the band? Yes. Not only a great hit single, not only launches that group, and you know they became one of the most famous groups in the history of rock, but it also kind of changed things. It's one of those songs that so many artists from, you know, like George Harrison on down pointed to as like, when that came along, we had to reckon with it. Right. We had to absorb the lessons of that music and then move on with that knowledge. Yeah. And of course, Aretha did a great cover of that song as well. Yeah. Yeah. Any others? Jackson 5. <laughs> I want you back. That's on my list too. Is it? Yes, for sure. Well, I mean, do you know who the, the song is credited to in terms of writing songwriting purposes? The Corporation. Yes. <laughs> what does that tell you? I don't know. That's not a good name for a writing team. I think no. the real I think the real writers are now given credit oh. as opposed to just the corporation. Yeah. Right. It's so weird. Well, I got a bunch of other ones. Um, of course, Baby One More Time, you know, by, oh, yeah. by Brittany. Yeah. Well, that was the of the list of the Rolling Stone best debut songs of all time. That was number one. It's funny. It's a song that I kind of came to terms with where I would find myself singing it and kind of, you know, just loving the groove and everything yeah. else. Then I go, well, wait a minute. That's a great. That's a dumb song. I, <laughs> I can't like that. You know, <laughs> in the end, I've given into it, though. It's, yeah. it's a wonderful song. I know us older rock guys sometimes have to wrestle with our own, you know, whatever it is for dealing with those songs. How about Just What I Needed by The Cars? That is a great song and a great debut. Perfect choice. Yeah. Perfect choice. You got some for me? I do. Um, Take It Easy by the Eagles. Oh, yeah. Is right out of the gate a great song, co-written by Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry, And Alive by Pearl Jam. Like, there is a band that announced its presence on the first album and with that first single. Great song. Would you say it influenced the direction of music at the time? Yes, between Pearl Jam and Nirvana, absolutely. Because I think the Take It Easy did that. Yeah. It was a ground, I mean, it seemed kind of like an obvious, like nice sing-along feeling with a bit of a country in it and everything else, but it changed the direction of things quite a bit. I, I think. think you're right. And you know what else changed the direction, Christopher? Rock Lobster. <laughs> no. Really? Uh, that's one of my songs. That's one of my favorite first songs. Like, it was so much fun. You know, we went to the beach. Everybody had matching towels. <laughs> Somebody went under a dock. And there they saw a rock. Oh, my gosh. Well, just for that, Last Train to Clarksville. <laughs> Last Train to Clarksville is a good song. It's a good song. Right? I just had to do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, very quickly, That's All Right by Elvis Presley. Yeah. Maybe the song that kicks it all off. Sultans of Swing was an amazing first song. I love the yes. way that sounded on the radio. Yeah. I know you're not a big Toto fan, neither am I really, but Good Hold the Line mm -hmm. is a great first single. Dream On by Aerosmith, phenomenal performance, maybe their best song. And for me, More Than a Feeling by Boston, that first song, 
sounded so good. What is wrong with you, Christopher? <laughs> oh, nothing. <laughs> he is cringing, everyone. Um, cringing. All right. Well, since you referred to um, the Elvis tune, how about Maybelline by Chuck Berry? Maybelline. Yeah, love that song. As I was motivating over the hill, I saw Maybelline in a Coupe de Ville. <laughs> All right, there you go. Some great debut singles. And that just got started as a chat about uh, about Melissa Etheridge for Pete's sake. Melissa Etheridge and all those other songs on Famous Lost Words. That does it for this week. Famous Lost Words is created and produced by my co-host, Tom Jokic, executive producer, Sarah Cummings. To binge the more than 100 past episodes, check out the iHeartRadio app or any podcast platform and just browse the library. We're confident you'll find something you'll like.